what an honor it is to bring in a cat who uh, came over to this country <clears throat> at a very different time. Um, in fact, when uh, jazz and democracy were coexisting in a pretty um, untethered way. And, you know, the reality is that uh, my guest came up uh, being part of the conversation, listening through both ears, and reacting spontaneously in the moment based on everybody's inner time feel, which made the music feel so good. He continues to do it today. Hendrick Merkins, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hello, hello. Hello, sir. You know, um, Lenny White was on the bandstand with Jackie McLean at 13 years old. Famadou Don Moy was on the bandstand with his elders. They'd kick him off the bandstand. But the point is that these cats were raised in a family. And I'm just going to read some of these names off, and I want to know if any of them resonate with you. Manfred Schuf, Ak Van Ruyen, Albert Mangelsdorf, Rudy Fusers, Emil Mangelsdorf, Heinz Sauer, Gerd Dudek, Michael Pills, Willie Johans, Wolfgang Downer, Ralph Hubner, Gunter Lentz. Yeah, of course. These are the classic guys from the German, not only German, the European jazz scene, mostly German. One of the guys, Ak Van Ruyen, was Dutch. He just passed away. So these are the guys that after the war were, yeah, they were the pioneers of jazz in Germany. But Germany is just one of many countries in Europe. Europe is, as you know, a lot of small little countries, and each country has an independent scene. Sometimes they mix, sometimes they don't. But that makes for a lot of geographic variety. <laughs> so the variety. So we have in Germany, that's where I'm from, these guys that you mentioned. Yes, I heard them. Some of them I played with. But they were also another generation. You know, I left 30 years ago, and they were really active when I was even too small to do anything. I just know they were there. Absolutely. Um, I found this album recorded live at the Domicile, Munich, July 11th, 71, and all these cats are playing. I mean, you were 14, 15 years old. Yes. And, and I know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but cats were in the clubs. There was no age. Were you in the clubs uh, at 13? I mean, can you talk? Not a little... at 13, but around the times, pretty pretty much after that. I don't think there was any rules, any laws like that. I don't think there's anything that minors couldn't go into the clubs. I don't think that was an issue. The issue is really... How do you get home? <laughs> you know, does somebody drive here or do you take the subway or whatever? That was the issue. Also, I'm from Hamburg, which is in the north. Hamburg did not have the fattest and healthiest of the jazz scenes. Domicile was in Munich. That was happening. Then Cologne was happening. Berlin was happening. Mm. Frankfurt was happening. Hamburg was not really a major jazz town. They had the big band there, the NDR big band, which still exists. And that brought a few Americans over there and other great players that that was their day gig, so to speak. But it wasn't really a major jazz town. Okay, so I want to, Hendrik, I love the way you're framing this. When you say a real jazz town, you're talking about people of color, basically. No, people of color are not even an issue. I mean, there are no people of color in Germany. There, there were a few here and there. Jazz, right. I meant, you know, activity. You know, this Frankfurt had much more going on. Also, geographically, Frankfurt is in the middle, and it's, it's, it's close to Holland, and 
France and all that. Uh, Munich is close to Switzerland and Austria and Italy. Hamburg is not really close to anything, maybe Denmark. <laughs> but I don't know why that was. I mean, I, I left for a reason, you know. If Absolutely. Poppin', I wouldn't I wouldn't feel the need to come here. I just always felt it wasn't really a jazz town. I still think it isn't. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, can you talk about your growing up, um, and maybe a, a group that you, you know, I'm fascinated with, uh, with time feel because my generation at, you know, at 45 years old, my generation and younger, uh, they really play to a clock. They play to, the drummers do, they play to a click. Uh, yes. they, they play very quantized. And I mean, I don't care if these cats that we talked about earlier were a different generation, but you're part of a different generation that still came up with the feeling of a round rhythm. And I wanted you to talk about an early ensemble or trio that you might have put together that was, a, in fact, a drummerless trio. A drummerless trio? Yes. Like, basically... Eh, not really. I always, I always looked for the conservative rhythm section, bass, drums, piano to play with me. That was always, and still to this day, is kind of what I do most of the time. Unless it's a New York restaurant gig, because there are lots of gigs here in the city where you can play, and drums is either plowed or there's no room for it. So I've, I came to the trio later on, when I, when I came here already. Over there, I was really into regular rhythm sections. Well, can you talk a little bit about the, you know, regardless of whether it was really a happening scene in Hamburg, can you talk about some for, a formative learning experience for you? Maybe it was even a humbling experience, but ultimately you can look back on it and say, yeah, that made me a stronger person and player. Well, Hamburg has a very strong old-time Dixieland jazz scene. Well, I don't know, there are many words for it. New Orleans jazz, Dixieland, old-time. The, the pre-swing version of jazz, you know, New Orleans. Absolutely, Korea. absolutely. They have a, and they still have it. There's a huge scene there in northern Germany, especially Hamburg. So I, those were the gigs that I did. I was part of a band, although I played vibes at the time. Of course, vibes and the traditional instrument but they liked it and that is what i did before i came to berkeley when i was 19 years old i was really a pre-swing vibes player and there were lots of things to do and i was playing a lot at some point i had a driver's license before that i don't even remember how i got my vibes <laughs> to the gigs but, <laughs> yes but you do dude you were lugging them on your back or something dude uh, either someone picked me up or the parents or i don't know how but that's kind of my upbringing is is pre-swing jazz. That's how I, that's what I learned first. Can you just talk a little bit about how you found fit your vibes into that? I don't recall. I mean, whatever you want to label that music as, Dixieland, New Orleans. Yes. I don't really. I don't. I can't recall any vibes players. So no, there is not. But it's not really pure. There were some really pure New Orleans bands, and of course, I didn't play with them. It's more like a general, you know, let's say pre-modern jazz thing, pre-bebop. I did, it's I kind did. kind of swing, kind of Dixieland, depending on the instrumentation. Sometimes you have a saxophone, sometimes you have a clarinet. It's not really completely a pure style, but it is pre-bebop. That you can say. And vibes worked. Not for the pure New Orleans dudes. They wouldn't want to know about it but uh, <laughs> other, anybody except those they liked it you're talking about if you had a chance to play with the original cats they wouldn't have been into it but the cats in germ in hamburg were into it 
No, no, I mean uh, in Hamburg, the uh, the New Orleans guys in Hamburg, what they, what they they consider themselves purists. Yes, okay, you know, the, right. Are, those are the guys. They were still German. I mean, Germans are also very, you know, they think in categories and they need to put something in a certain. They have to label something. You know, once you label your stuff New Orleans jazz, then there's no vibraphone. It's not very flexible for those guys. But other than those few guys. No, I was I was playing a lot and and something that would be maybe pre bebop. Fascinating. So let me be clear the the orig the the traditional cats didn't. So you you basically were going. You had to kind of peel off on your own and create your own ensembles. Is that fair to say, or did you actually play with the? Uh, can you talk about some you know some of that early like some of that early formative experience with the vibes? You said the language of the. Obviously, it was pre-modern jazz, but being born in 57, you definitely were hearing the sounds of bebop over, you know, Radio Free America, whatever you were listening to, there had to have been bebop there. I mean, I like bebop. I love bebop. I was probably sometimes more modern than the other guys, but the gigs were not, you know, we didn't play bebop tunes. We played swing tunes. We played traditional jazz tunes. What I played over it is another story. But I didn't really have my own band much before I came back from Berkeley. I went to Berkeley for three years, and then I came back. And after that, I was more active as a leader. Before I went to Berkeley, I was really just side, a sideman with several bands over there playing that style. <clears throat> did you, um, did you have, an, did, did, was there a circuit? I mean, obviously, like you said, Europe is really broken up into a bunch of smaller countries, but, uh, you know, even Billy Cobham, I was interviewing him yesterday, and he was just talking about, you know, all this, mainly when you came over to Berkeley, but in that early 70s time, there was such a fertile music scene in the United States, and yet guys like Dexter Gordon and Kluke and all those guys were living in Europe. I mean, in the before you went to Berkeley, did you have a chance to see Max Roach or Dizzy? I mean, how connected and how close, I mean, just... How much did you get the chance to feel those original masters? Of oh, that's actually, actually, I was really lucky because in Hamburg there was a club called Dennis Swing Club. Dennis was from the islands, I don't know, Barbados or Jamaica, one of those. He had a club, he was a piano player, they had a house trio there with Sammy and Earl, those were the two guys. They were also, I think they were from Barbados or Jamaica, I don't know, one of those countries. They're all from, from the islands. But they there was a club, and he they were have a house trio. So they played jazz. And but the good thing is, whenever a major American star was going through Hamburg and played the big concert halls, this guy Dennis would go backstage and invite them and offer them food and women and other entertainment. And then they would go to the club and hang. And eventually we would, we would sit in, or they would sit in with us. So... I'd actually met a whole bunch of these great musicians in these after-hour sessions at Dennis. I mean, a whole bunch. <laughs> There's actually a great story, one of my good anecdotes, which is true. Mm -hmm. that Dennis it was a piano player, but he was also the club owner, so he had other stuff to do. He had to attend to business, and one certain day I come in, and I see Dennis waving me over, said, Henry, can you cover for me at the piano? And of course, I don't play much piano. I play like every musician's piano you know like sure. of course here and there but anyway good enough so i sit at the piano and then i wonder why does dennis not want to play piano the club is full and something must be going on and then i see at the very first table 
like three feet away from me sits Oscar Peterson. <laughs> he was and, running for the hills, dude. <laughs> um, so Dennis said, May, that's, that's Hendrik take over. So Oscar Peterson was smiling. He probably understood what was going on, and I was smiling, and that was that. So You want to, can you just, I mean, we're talking like, uh, who, I mean, the list might be too long, but was it like, uh, Dolphy or Bobby Hutcherson or Harold Land. I mean, who who did you get a chance? The Daisy Band was there, for instance. Then Buddy Tate was there. Oh. I mean, I forget all these Clark Terry, all these guys. The modern guys, not so much. That wasn't really Dennis' thing. It was really the the the, the, the legends, you know, the the Norman Grants guys. That's the Philharmonic. Like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's what that's what Dennis liked, and yeah, the Hampton Band was there, the Basie Band was there, without Basie, but the band was there, and man, it's, it's, I've forgotten so many. It's okay. But, no, yeah, I mean, but, the I just I'm wondering about. I mean, in, if you even though even those traditional cats, it doesn't even matter. It's just like so much of the beautiful music that I love and you've played it. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about like the essence of some of those cats. I mean, a lot of them didn't talk a lot. There was a lot of nonverbal communication on the bandstand, you know, Freddie green. I'm not sure who was, uh, I don't know if Sonny Payne was playing drums, but it was just, there was a fierce recognition of individuality. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about what rubbed off on you because like you said, in Germany, and you know, there's plenty of American people that are like that too. They're very rigid. They need to compartmentalize things and have to have familiarity. And yet, I'm looking at all these elders that we listed right at the beginning, and every one of them on this album has written original tunes. There's no cover tunes. And it, so I just wanted you to talk about individuality and when, when that kind of came into your consciousness as it related to music. Well, after I came back from Berkeley, I was part of the band, and that band always invited American guys for tours. So I played with Buddy Tate, for instance, a couple of weeks in Europe. I played with Sweets Edison a couple of tours. And on those tours, you, you would go around the country, you know, in your foul Volkswagen bus, hmm. and, you know, play one-nighters, but then you hang with these guys the whole time. So these were actually the learning experiences, sitting in the bus with these guys and just... Just catching the vibe, you know. They never complained, for instance. They were all cool, you know. And at some point, I just understood that if you actually want to work in this business and if you want to survive in the Basie band or in any other band, you can't be a pain in the ass, you know. You have to, <laughs> you have to just yeah, I take did. it as it is. And, 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 you know, I've never seen these guys complain when, when the European musicians or me would be already complaining about how bad the hotel is or how bad this is or that is, they would not. They just wouldn't. And, you know, they were the ones who were entitled to it, but they didn't because they've seen other stuff that I can't even imagine. And they were just glad to be there, you know, because they were glad they had a gig and, you know, and all that. I mean, if, they, if something really bad would happen, I mean, they're, they're all very sensitive about getting paid. If there's a problem with that, that's the absolutely other. dude you did know, you guys then, yeah go ahead but other than that short of that you know conditions and this and that they were not very sensitive to it and we've seen nasty things but it just seems like that's something to, that i then learned from them you know if you a, a gig is a sacred thing you know unless you really can't deal with it for whatever reason you deal with it <laughs> i mean it, it did they <clears throat> 
I mean, without, did they talk to you about some of the horror shows that, I mean, some of the horrible racism that they experienced? No, they did not. I mean, it's not only, it's Buddy Tate. Uh, then I also did with Herb Ellis. I did that with Jimmy Carr. No, I, was wow. on the, I did a lot of these tours in Europe over the years with these guys. I never heard these stories. I heard other stuff. I heard positive stuff or, uh, you know, whatever, anecdotes that are funny or this and that. But they would not open up to me about racism. That's something that they keep amongst them if they even talk about it. They would not sit there and talk to everybody about how terrible the race relations were in America in the 40s. That is not for us. That was not, not for us to hear. You know, they kept that private. Absolutely. And, no, I just wonder and, about, I mean, I just... also, you know, this, yeah. the one thing that I learned in this country or in jazz in general is if you want to get a gig, you got to be agreeable and pleasant. Or at least not edgy, you know. And if you if you have a reputation of, of always talking about negative stuff, you have, there's a problem. So <laughs> they just don't do that. You know, they might do it... If for somebody they feel comfortable with or somebody they think they have the same problem, but they would not just dish that up to just anybody. It's, that's not, they were very private about that. They were not private about other stuff. They shared positive things and music anyway, and they were, they loved that we, their music and all that. But they would not tell you about hardships. That was not our business. You just, it was just a feeling of gratitude and grace. I mean, obviously, they, you just felt the gratitude they had. It, you guys might be complaining. Well, the, 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 there's a great word. Yeah. Cool. cool. Yeah. They were yeah. cool. Exactly. You know, I, they, 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 I don't know what the scientific definition of cool is, but they were just cool. <laughs> you know, they were, they, were, they were great. They were in a good mood. They played great. And if something bothered them, they would not lay it on other people. You know, cool. I don't know what cool, how do you describe cool, but they were cool. You know, it's so beautiful. You learn. Um, <clears throat> this is a quote from uh, my dear uncle, and we just lost him. I'm I'm curious if you ever crossed paths with Wolfgang Mel's. Um, he said, oh. you know, "Great bass player." Um, he said he came to the states in 1959 by boat. It docked in New York City at 48th Street. Ha Jan Hammer came by boat. Alan Broadbent did. I know they're a little bit older than you. How did you wind up ultimately? I'm, I know you're going to say plain, but maybe not. I mean, how did you get to Berkeley? Why did you even... Um, obviously, there were only a couple of real jazz schools. Um, I'm just curious as to um, ultimately what made you decide that you wanted to come to Berkeley. Well, Berkeley, first of all, if you look from the outside to America, internationally, Berkeley is by far the most known and the most famous of the jazz schools. Americans know about North Texas and University of Miami and all the other, and Juilliard and this and that, and Maybe it changed a little bit, but back in the day, it was Berkeley. Mm. Berkeley was the jazz school. And Berkeley offered a major in vibes. I was a vibes player at that time, but I'm not a percussionist. You know, I'm not a classical percussionist, or I, I'm also not a drummer. I'm a vibes player. And in most of the other schools, you would have to take percussion. And I don't care. I don't want to play bongos and timpanis. <laughs> timpanis. <laughs> yes, I don't care about that. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be a symphonic player. I That's did. not what I do. Yeah. So Berkeley offered vibes as a major. So that, when I found that out, said, I'm going to Berkeley. And when, and so talk, first of all, was, was like, uh, was, was Swallow and Sco there? Was Swallow teaching? I'm trying to figure out the class that you were in when you got there, because that was like 75. They were, they were, 
uh, gone or older, but my contemporaries are, for instance, uh, Ralph Moore, who played on the... Oh, my God, Monster, yeah, yeah. Donald Harrison, those are the guys that were... Uh, Kaikowski, Dave Kaikowski. That's the generation, Smitty Smith. That's the guys that were in my, you know, in my, whatever, we, we hung, or, or at least we met, or we were there at the same time. I'm curious. Gary Burton was actually on a leave of absence when I was there. I, I, I studied with somebody else. There was no Gary Burton. He was still officially in the school, but he wasn't there when I was there. So we're talking like 78, 77, that kind yeah, of? 77 to 80. Got it. 70s. So I, was, I guess Matheny might have been there, or maybe that was after Matheny. But the, um, um, you know, I, Hendrik, this is just really important because, um, you know, I, I believe, I'm not sure, maybe Herb Pomeroy was still there. or um, Yes, he was there. You know, and he had a big band um, that played every week. Uh, and, you know, the funny thing is that, you know, to me, like nowadays, there's such a supply and demand issue because you have all these amazing technique uh, players with technique and facility, and they got nowhere to play. And yet, I believe that you were playing in the combat zone in Boston. Can you talk about some of the live gigs? To me, it was just... Oh, they had. We had... Uh, there were lots of clubs. I had a band, the Back Bay Popper. Oh, my... God, uh, Dude, get me the Bay tapes Popper. of that, dude. I need the tapes. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I got to revive that band. The name is too good to... That is so... Back the Bay Back Bay... Dude, I lived at... I went to BU. I know what you're talking about. Man. I love <laughs> and it. And Ralph Moore was in it, right? Oh, Ralph my Moore God, man. Hero, there. dude. There what? were lots of clubs. There was Poose Pop and 1969, Riles, and I forgot other ones, but there were gigs, definitely. There were lots of clubs, so we played. I mean, not, not all the time. We were still, you know, Berkeley was still the most important thing. Also... If I had a gig, I had to figure out how to get, how to get the vibes there. I don't even remember how I did that. Must have hit cab or something. I have no idea. That's pretty but amazing. Gigs, yeah. definitely. Oh, yeah, Boston. I like Boston. I still like Boston. I think, I mean, Boston is not New York, and there's, you know, not the same amount of gig or musicians, but Boston is has a jazz history for sure. When you got there and started playing live, I mean, jazz was definitely sort of at the tail end of its quote-unquote American popularity at that time. But still, um, you know, we weren't like marinating in, and unfortunately just having to take these sonic baths and synthesizers and, you know, drum machines. It was a couple years before that. Obviously, disco hadn't completely infiltrated, you know, the ears of the people. I mean, did you, can you just talk about the vitality of, of jazz when you got to America. It's just so funny now because um, it just seems like so much of the music, so much, so many times I go to see jazz and um, it doesn't relate to the burning quality of the music that I listened to when you were coming up and also playing. It seems to oh, me. I mean, the, it, we were still in the late seventies. So, you know, there Michael Brackett didn't make his impact yet and all these guys. So jazz was, hasn't changed that much. It was still, you know, if it was straight ahead, it was still Dexter and, you know, and Art Pepper. I saw all these guys live. I saw Sonny Stitt. They were all, these guys were alive. And if you went to, if you wanted to hear jazz, you could hear these guys still. They were still there. And, you know, the, the people admired them, you know, that we were still in the in the era before it changed drastically to more modern stuff. That hadn't happened yet. 
So there was that. I mean, jazz was not as popular as your regular pop music or country and western or rock or whatever. If it was still jazz, you know, a minority or whatever music for for special people. But if you listen to jazz, you could still listen to the traditional mainstream version of it. I heard Art Pepper, Dexter, Sonny Stitt, all these guys, James Moody. I mm. heard all of them in the Boston jazz clubs. Sometimes, most of the time, with local rhythm section, Ray Santisi. Oh my God, Ray! That was the other name. I was him and Pomeroy were at Berkeley. That yeah, Santisi. Pomeroy and 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 there was there was there was still jazz was hadn't you know we are talking this is now forty years ago. I know. And and, and more the jazz was still that was also pre Marcellus and pre this and that and maybe the young maybe there were, there were a couple of young lions. But that was even before that movement. That was still another era. Well, you're, I mean, we're talking to a, a master, Hendrik Merk, Merkins, and uh, um, was were you playing primarily unamplified vibes? I mean, I know that Abercrombie, years before in Boston, had a group with electric vibes. Burton toyed with that. And just being a cat from that time, I mean, you couldn't get away from... Brothers Johnson, Sly Stone, all, all that electric funk. I'm just curious about part of when you talk about the old guard, when I think of Sonny Stitt, I just think acoustic. I think definitely acoustic. I mean, definitely vibes because I started liking my first guy was Lyle Hampton and then Bags, Mill Jackson. Those are my guys. And I love the sound of acoustic vibraphone. That's why I play that thing. Mm -hmm. I don't care for electric sounds, especially on vibes. I definitely played. Acoustic. I had my Massa that I bought there, and that is still my best instrument. That's in Europe now, but that is my of all the vibraphones that I own and owned. That has the best sound because it's from a certain era. No, I, I my vibes, my acoustic vibes to the gig in probably a cab, if I remember right. <laughs> I want I you to remember. Before. I want the bay, the bat, the bay, the back bay boppers, man. You were definitely folding that stuff up and putting it in the trunk. I think. Must be, yeah. I mean, but also the old caps were bigger, you know. Those old caps, they, they had, there was room for that stuff. I must have been the cap. I don't see what else. I didn't have a car. It must have been the cap. No idea. So, but yeah. No, no, definitely definitely acoustic. I didn't, I mean, if they, if it's a big club and they have a microphone, then I flew through the microphone, but I'm not schlepping an amp. Vibes is actually pretty loud. The way I play it, it's, it's pretty loud. Yeah. I, I completely, no, I, I, this is kind of... <clears throat> in the weeds a little bit, but I, th I think you're going to understand what I'm saying. I, I remember Emil Richards, uh, again, uh, you're not a percussionist, but Emil was the, the time he did all the percussion in, in Hollywood, but before that, you know, was on the road with Shearing Sinatra playing vibes. Al McKibben was yes. on bass <clears throat> and he was obsessed like you were with Milt Jackson. And he said that Milt had this, at least in the fifties, he had the sorriest looking vibes you'd ever seen in your life. And actually, I saw them in Mickey Roker's basement, rest in peace. But they were just like this sorry, sagging thing of, and everyone's like, how the heck? And then he started to play them, and sonically, just through his soul, his life force, he brought that stuff to life, and it was just like, and Harold Jones, the great drummer, great bassy drummer, he talked about being in uh, clubs in Chicago with a, uh, guitar and organ again it was electrified but he didn't have any amplification and he had to generate volume or s through his soul through life force and I just wanted you to talk to younger cats because most people would think you have to 
pound the instrument, whether it's the vibes or the drums, but I just see it over and over again. The cats with the, the life force can generate sonically through that. And I wanted you to talk about, how, you know, maybe a situation where you couldn't really, you were in a club, the sound wasn't that great, you definitely weren't amplified, but yet, you know. You... Yeah, but I don't worry about that because the vibes naturally sounds good. You know, that it, that the vibes doesn't need help. You don't need to put reverb on the vibes. You don't need to. The vibes is a great, pleasant sounding instrument. If somebody can't hear it, that's not my problem. <laughs> Come closer to the vibe. I, I dig, it. man. I, no. What about I you, though? What about, I have a yeah. pretty loud sound. I don't know why that is. must be my touch, my attack. I, not that I try to, but I do sound pretty loud, I guess. I never had a problem... Had a problem. If somebody hears the drums and the piano, they definitely hear me too. I definitely cut through. So this amplification thing is maybe in large halls, but in the regular club, they hear me, man. And sometimes they move away from the voice because I'm too loud. So I guess maybe it problem. was not very well worded. I mean, like the idea that, like, how do you account for the fact that Milt had the sorriest looking vibes and yet when he played them, he brought them to life. Only somebody... Yeah, but that is the mystery that we don't understand. You know, why did Johnny Hodges sound that way? Johnny Hodges could take any alto, any mouthpiece, any read from anybody <laughs> and sound like that. Unbelievable. Johnny could take, could take... Oh, there's actually a great recording. I think it's either Stan Getz or some other tenor and Gary Mulligan, and they change horns. You know, the tenor player plays Barry, and Gary Mulligan plays the tenor. Oh, my Gary God. Gary Mulligan sounds like Gary Mulligan on the tenor. <laughs> it's like, you know right away, you know, and vice versa. It's not the instrument. Never was. So, Never was. so, so Hendrik, just humor me. We call it a mystery. You've obviously spent time, as I have, thinking about it. What is the best? How do you describe that? Is it soul? Is it pole? I mean, what is it that makes somebody have that because you know you could make the argument that any any pro any serious musician uh, uh anyone that's done their time has some of that in them and i just i mean to me it's it's a mystery you can't quantify it but yeah, but you know it's the same as having a voice you know if you listen to somebody you can tell oh that's ronald reagan or that's i don't know that's danny devito you right know, you don't have to see the person you listen to half a sentence, and you know. So why is that? Because of the vocal cords, or because of the nose, or because of the throat, or the tongue? Who cares? It's something that comes out. On the instrument, it's the same thing. You hear something, and your body will find a way to make it happen. If it's vibes, then it's the wrists, and the way you attack, and if it's a horn, then it's the way you form your mouth. We don't know these things physiologically, but what, what I know is the brain wants it to sound a certain way, and the body will make that happen. I mean, how about these guys, impersonators that can make that can impersonate any like the new guy on Saturday Night Live who does a great Donald Trump? That's right. How does he How does he do that? His brain finds a way to shape his throat and voice and and I don't know what to sound like that. Mm. I mean, I don't know how, but the brain knows what what has to come out of it. And for people with a great musical voice it's the same thing there's just the sound i i see i've seen bill jackson on videos sitting in somewhere in bulgaria Czechoslovakia, on another vibraphone with other mallets and it sounds like Jackson. <laughs> no but i it's let me ask i did no it's beautifully articulated there i mean it's, it's it's a dna strand kind of thing but the um 
did have you been, can you talk about a time when you showed up with a for a gig and and your vibes didn't make it and you had to I mean I remember Joe Sample the great piano player saying like you know when the Crusaders were playing the Chitlin circuit way back when you know he'd be like I wonder what dog du jour I'm going to play today you know missing black uh, missing keys did you have a situation like that where you were like no, you, this, this, the thing is back in the day there were not a whole lot of vibraphones in clubs or halls you had to bring your own shit very rarely did I play somebody else's vibraphone these days it's different because vibes is more established in New York for instance Smalls and Mesro they do have a set of vibes and then I play the vibes that's there but back in those days you had to bring your vibes. There was very rarely would you find a vibraphone there. And if there was a vibraphone, it probably wasn't good shape because it probably was a big hole. So that problem was not really one of my problems. But man, I've played uh, tours in Russia like 10 years ago, of around 10 years ago, and we were in the back woods of Siberia somewhere, and there's a vibraphone, and <laughs> it's half fallen apart. <laughs> but my Russian friends, being Russian and being survivors, they, they got tape and hammers and rubber bands and this and that and made it happen. Oh, this is so great, dude. This is so great. They, 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 they triaged it together for Hendrik. Yeah, of course. I told them, well, this has to be there, this has to be there, and this can't be too tight. And then they did it, and we all, and then we left and we played. I don't care, man. I mean, you know, I mean, I care if you put out a contract or a rider and you ask for something. And they don't do it. But that's, I care because that's attitude, you know, that's just bad business. But man, you can never blame the instrument, man. This, no, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, 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 you that, well, I dig. Um, did you get an offer to play with a band in the States before, or did you, and, and why did you go back to Germany? Most of the cats, I mean, even Vinnie Kaliuta was at Berkeley around that time, but he jumped on a bus and went to Los Angeles, uh, I mean, well, it was also a visa thing. When I went yeah. to Berkeley, I was here on a student visa, and that was done when I finished Berkeley. So I could have either stayed illegally, which is not really my thing. So I went back to Germany. Also, felt I wasn't ready. I wanted to woodshed. So I, you know, I came back to Germany, lived there for a few years, went to Brazil, lived there for a few years, and then at some point, I got a recording contract with Con Concord Records. I was still living in Berlin. Hmm. And when we had that uh, recording contract, I told them, well, you know, now that I'm on your label, it would be nice if I could come to the States and promote the album. <laughs> so they gave me an artist visa, or they arranged for an artist visa. And that's how I finally came to this country. <clears throat> so you're, you're not even sure how they, how, how did they conquer, was it Eddie Jefferson? I'm trying to figure out who was running that label, but. Yeah, Carl Jefferson. Carl Jefferson, thank you. Not Eddie. Uh, so you're telling me that just, one day they called your landline and were like, hey, man. No, we... no, so I, I, I sent them something. But I sent them my Brazilian stuff. I know they, Carl Jefferson, they had the Encanted label, they had Carl Chieda, they had, yeah. you know. That's right. Tito Puente and, and I don't know who else. They, they, they were into Latin stuff besides just straight ahead. So I sent them my Brazilian project and they, they, they dug it. They said, cool. They bought it. And then... They gave me a contract. Yeah, it was that was one lucky move in my life. You know, it's getting signed by Concord Records. You know, everybody has some story. You know, somebody gets discovered, and I, I landed a deal with Concord because I sent something to them that they liked. So, and that changed my whole life. Then next thing came the artist visa, and then we moved to the, the states and made the 
visa or a green card, and then the green card enters citizenship, and the rest is history. Well, luck is the residue. Some branch Ricky said luck is the residue of design. So, I mean, I agree with you. Um, but I, I guess maybe did you have a chance? I mean, I've interviewed Jao Donato. Uh, uh, I've interviewed um, Lalo Schifrin. Um, did you go into the belly of the beast? Were you with in the Amazon or were you mainly in, in Rio? Can you talk about... I was in Rio. I was in Rio because that is where in those days the shit was happening back in the day. I'm, I'm not really, you know, I'm not a scientist of Brazilian music. Absolutely you know, I, not. I, I, no, I, no, no. I like my samba jazz. You know, Brazilian music is huge. There is so much stuff in Brazilian music and I don't really need all of it and I don't use all of it. I have a very specific thing that I like, my samba jazz version, and that was happening in Rio back in the day. And, you know, and also, you know, there's the whole the whole uh, image of Rio was the sugar loaf and all that into the Corcovado. So I was very happy in Rio. So I lived there for a year and then came back, back to Germany. I mean, as best as you can, can you talk about how you use the flavors of that, of the samba within, you know, to, to the person who's going to listen to this in 50 years and hasn't checked your, out your discography, you know, how did you, fuse the samba rhythms into your version of of jazz or music well i didn't i don't really do much i call brazilian musicians and they do it <laughs> you know I, I i chose the tunes or i write the compositions and then i get a rhythm section that knows how to play that stuff you know i am not brazilian i'm the first one to tell you i'm not brazilian so this is not really authentic pure brazilian jazz at all it's my version of it but it works you know I, I have a certain taste that works but i still need a rhythm section that brings it to life and i always found the greatest guys back in rio anyway in berlin i had one and then in, in new york well, there's there's a handful on each instrument or more than a handful of each in, on each instrument that plays my music so it's always it's the band is as important as the music well, you're absolutely right. I mean, what is, how would you describe your version of it? I mean, it's original tunes. Where, where does the, where's the pulse of the... Well, samba jazz, there, there's something called samba jazz, you know, which is really kind of bebop-ish. Yes. Over samba jazz rhythm. Claudio Diti is the king of that. That's and right. If you, anything you listen from Claudio Diti, that is classic samba jazz. And that will be where I see myself or what I am trying to do, which is really a traditional form of straight-ahead jazz on top of Brazilian rhythms. You know, I don't really take it too far out. That's not what I'm interested in, and I'm definitely also not very traditional Brazilian because I'm a jazz musician. <laughs> but the samba jazz thing in the Claudio Didi, you know, vein, that is where I'm going. So the compositions matter. But it really matters that you have bass, drums, and piano who can play in that style. And then it also matters what you play on top of that. So that's also not unimportant. But if you have the wrong rhythm section, you don't have samba jazz. Um, who was your vibes teacher at Berkeley, by the way? Oh, there were several. There was Mike Hatfield, Ed Sandin, Ted Wolf. It changed. I was there for six or eight semesters, several ones. I just no, none of them is really too too much known outside of Boston. No, but uh, you know the reason I ask is uh, <clears throat> so many. I remember Mark Levine, rest in peace, the great uh, piano player, trombone player. He 
he'd show up at Jackie Byard's. Jackie wasn't even teaching at Berkeley, but he lived there and he was giving lessons. And, um, you know, ultimately he said, you know, he'd play drums and Mark would come in and get on the piano and they, you know, he'd say, let's play Cherokee in all 12 keys. And then around E or, you know, F or something, Mark would fall apart and Jackie would say, okay, now you know, you need to, you know what you need to work on. We'll see you next week. And uh, I'm not really the vibes player. The vibes teachers were not that important. There's also another thing, which is Berkeley is very much in the Gary Burton vein. The vibes players are, are very good. Gary Burton influence, which is a four mallet approach. I'm a two mallet. Abs- no, no. I, but this is my. I'm sorry. I just I I wanted what I wanted to get uh, at. And so my the vibes lessons weren't really the centerpiece of my education. I we did it. We played together. It's fine. I had fun. But you know, I picked up most of the vibes stuff from listening to other players. And I studied privately with Bob Mover, the saxophone player who used to live in Boston. Wow. So Berkeley was great for ensembles. Berkeley was great for arranging, for theory, and just to hang with people. But the vibes playing itself is not really a Berkeley thing. First of all, I already kind of knew what I wanted back in the day myself. I'm pretty much a self-taught dude. And then I picked it up from other instruments because I'm a, you know, I transcribed Charlie Parr and Dexter Gord and all that, a little bit Mills Jackson, but I'm not really a, a, you know, vibes player, a formal vibes player. That was never really my thing. Absolutely, man. No, what I wanted to get at was this, is that because you were self-taught and I'm guessing probably you learned to hear music before you learned to read it, most of the cats, your ears were huge. Uh, even before you came to Berkeley, all the cats, the generation before you and yours, could hear everything. Today, yeah, I don't know if my ears are that great. They're probably. But did, but, but here's my point. But you I knew what I wanted. I have a. I always had a direction. Here's my point: always. is that is that a lot? I don't care what instrument it is. Cats today are learning to read music before they're learning to hear it. So guys like Gary Bartz, from a horn point of view, says their ears are locked, and as a result. A lot of cat. Anyway, modern jazz. I hear a lot of homogenized sound. I can't tell who anybody is anymore, and I just wonder what your advice would be because we're saturated in visual content now. We're saturated, and so much of it is. Advice. Nobody would have any use for my advice because it's another era. You know, we moved on from that. The classic period of jazz, thirties. 40s, 50s, you need to have a sound. If you didn't have a sound, you didn't have a gig. That's right. Johnny Hodges, Harry Carney, Benny Goodman, Louis Armstrong, all these dudes, Roy Eldridge, they had a sound. So they became stars because they had a sound. They were recognizable. That is completely unimportant these days. Today, you know, you have to do something flashy that catches the attention in less than 10 seconds. And then you have a career. Times just have changed. And if I tell somebody to work on the tone or something, they will probably not have the patience to go through with it because they have to update their TikTok. You know, so <laughs> my advice is useless. Well, no, no, no. That, first of all, that's, I'm, I'm not going to let you get away with that. I want you, this is, the question is this. Hungry Cat doesn't have a lot of dough searching for his individual sound what are the end, what are the things that somebody in your mind, if they have the patience, if they have the drive and the gumption, what are the things that they need to do in order to at least attempt to find their cut above the morass of what everybody else is doing on that apparatus? Well, I mean, it has to come from within. Usually, if you are a jazz musician, there must be a reason for it. You, yes. know, you don't get born with a saxophone in your mouth. You know, there is something you heard that you liked. Otherwise, you wouldn't play jazz. There must be something 
that initiated the process. So you have to search for yourself, who do you like? You know, do, you, do I like Dexter Gordon or do I like David Liebman or what? And, you know, and then, then try to find people that you like and then you will move in that direction. But if there's any advice, then the advice would be, you know, go back a few decades. Don't just listen to the people that are hot now, but listen to the thing people that you think are ancient history because that's where your idols learn from, you know. Go back to Dexter Gordon and Sonny Rollins and Bird and Coltrane, or even better, Johnny Hodges and older Louis Armstrong, because your idols learn from those. So, you know, you're, you're, you're already a third, this is already third-hand information. You know, there's, in these days, everything's on YouTube. Everything's available. You can, if there's a recording, you can find it. There's no excuse to not check out the old dudes anymore. But you have to... The problem is, though, you know this, is that we're drowning in content, and most of it's so mediocre, so you really have to be a seeker. I mean, when I saw this record from the... How do you say? Domicile? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Domicile, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when you see... When I found this record, I mean, how many people would have actually known I saw Wolfgang Downer and flipped out? And, and like, I mean, you have to really seek, because before... I don't care if it was a jazz record or R and B soul record. There was a certain bar you had to meet in order for it to get produced and published. And now it's like you can do anything. So I just, you know, to me, do you worry? I mean, it's the wrong word. I mean, you got to sing for your supper still. What is, even though we want to be in the moment, um, what are the biggest issues facing melodic improvisation or instrumental uh, music in in the 21st century, according to Hendrik. Well, Mark. I mean, you just said it. What is melodic improvisation? I don't hear any melodic improvisation. Right. I hear I hear harmonic improvisation. That's right. Pattern instrumentation. Melodic is almost a thing from the past. But man, that's not my problem. If people don't do it or if they don't like it, it's their <laughs> loss. You know, I mean, I cannot t- teach somebody to like melody. You know, if they if they are going in another direction. Yeah, too bad. You know, I know what I like, you know, and I learn from that. And if I have students, then I point out to them. Then I say, yes, West Montgomery, that is the perfect guitar solo. Slow building up, then octaves, then chord solos over the course of 10 choruses. This is probably the best way to ever do a solo. Try to top that. But, you know, if you don't have a student that wants to listen to that, then they're on their own. Man, times have changed so many times. We are now 2020s, you know. I'm talking about 90 years ago, the 1930s, when when sound was on the menu. But it's always good to go back to that era because that is when the st- when everything started, you know. So if that would be my advice. So listen to the old guys and you'd be surprised. Maybe there's something you actually like. I just, I feel like I saw this somewhere, but I just, I, I saw a picture. Did you play with, uh, Sonny Chirac and Pharaoh ever? No. Never. Okay, that was somebody else then. I, that's It's tripping me out. Um, I mean, Roy Haynes is still alive. That guy was in Louis Russell's Armstrong from the 40s. You know, it's just like, do you, do you, you do you have a, um, how much do you care about seeing this tradition or music? Again, things have changed. I think it's the most important thing. I mean, why is it the most important thing? Because this is, these are the original cats. It's like talking to somebody who was there at the last supper, you Mm. know, (laughs) not having 200 
2,000 years right. of Bible translation through the, you know, revised by, by politicians and, and translated in a bad way. It's like talking to one of the five, 12 disciples, you know, what, what actually happened? What did you have for, for dessert? You know, did, did Jesus, did he burp? Did he not burp? Did he pick his nose or whatever? These guys were there. So if you are really interested, you go back to the source. And for me, it was Jimmy Cobb, you know, Jimmy Cobb, the great drummer. Oh, my, was my hero. I interviewed him. Oh, my God. I, played, I had several tours with him. I did three or four albums, and I hung out with him, and that was my, my strongest connection to that era. So if you are blessed and you still find them, so far, I think, left is Sonny Rollins and Roy Haynes and George Coleman. And... I wonder if there's anybody else. Maybe there. Houston Person, although he's Houston Person, yes, yeah, and well, he's not quite as old. Ex but, exactly, you know, guys, those were guys from the, the the most important period, you know, the fifties, and even Roy Haynes, even back in the forties with Charlie Parker. The guy played with Charlie Parker. Jesus Christ! Well, let me ask you: I mean, the other guy who, who who hung with Parker and 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 I believe is still kicking it around is Terry Gibbs. Yes, Terry Gibbs. Well, actually, man, I mean, he's actually a good friend. I talked to Gary a lot on the phone. <laughs> yeah, no, we did. He is. He he's a. I mean, that dude was used to get in Charlie Parker's face because he's like, "Why are you yeah. such a junkie, man?" He's like, "You're such a." I mean, that it was like, but don't. I mean, but then he, that's exactly what I, I, I. We talk. I don't know, man. Every couple of weeks, and then it's like an hour. He tells me stories, and I listen. <laughs> that for me is. It's like university, isn't it? Going to Harvard. You know, having an hour on the phone with Gary Gibbs, Terry Gibbs, is like doing your doctorate at MIT. You know? so, <laughs> Dude, it's just been, I mean, it's. So, because you understand yeah. so much about the times, not just the notes, but the, what happened and, and how things were the way they were. You know, if you don't talk to people from that time, you don't understand. You know, it, it's. I mean, I'm already the third or fourth hand, but. I talked to Jimmy to Jimmy Carver, I played with him and Terry Gibbs and these guys and Buddy Tate, that's nineteen twenties. Oh my god. And Sweets Edison's and you you learn things. It's not about the notes. It's about how to live and how to be and all that. Absolutely. It's your life story coming out through you. I mean um you look at can you just talk about um how you learned to uh, get out of your own way can, or manage your ego. I think there's a lot of people today who, you know, they want to show off their facility and their chops and I wind up staring at the wall. And to me, it's like you could play one note and if it feels good, that's all that matters. Um, you know, with your gig coming up and stuff, you know, I just wonder if you can talk about like staying humble. I mean, did, is, is there, can you just talk about your evolution in that sense? Did you ever... Were you ever somebody that was a little bit of, little bit cocky and and maybe? Oh, definitely, yeah. and I probably still am. It's a personal personality thing. But you also a very clear message. You know, if you are cocky or if you have a big fat ego, that will show in the amount of resonance. You know, if people call you or not. Mm. You know, it's just mm -hmm. there is the, the the message is clear. It comes back clear. So you will you will know. You know, if it works or if it doesn't work, you know, people will let you know. And if you want to work as a side, if you want to work as a leader and you can get the gigs yourself, you can be an asshole <laughs> because you're the leader, you know. But if you're a side man and you got to be pleasant so that the band leader wants to call you again because 
he doesn't have to. You know, I mean, there's no real loyalty. It's a business. You know, like uh, Art Blakey left the people go after a couple of years or earlier to to get the next guy in the band, and they didn't even know what was happening. So it's not about a lifelong friendship. It's a gig. And if somebody else comes along that fits it better, there you go. So you learn how to not be let go. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, can you just talk about your a little bit of, about your gig coming up? I, I got a big tip my cap to uh, Jim yeah, Igo. On Tuesday, yeah. we're here in, in New York City at the Zinkman. We're doing a tribute to Roberto Meniscal, which is one of the original Bossa Nova legends. He wrote a f- couple of of the main bossa nova hits that made him hits that made him actually rich <laughs> or at least yes. comfortable. Yes. So he is one of the guys that was there at the time and he's a contributor and he's one of the major guys. So we are doing a few of his tunes and play your summer jazz from that period honoring the, the traditional summer jazz. <clears throat> um did you ever meet or collaborate with Joe Gilberto, Joe Beam, or uh, oh, any of those, like, did you get it? Because you talked about, you know, uh, some of these original um, Sweets Edison, some of these original guys uh, from the 20s and 30s and 40s, but what, in terms of the, the, the Brazilian cats, who how far does the lineage go back for Hendrick? Yeah, but, you know, the Brazilian cats is... Like Gerardo Roberto and, and Jobim, those are one is a singer, one is a songwriter. They are not really samba jazz guys. You know, right. you might meet them socially or whatever if you're lucky. <laughs> George Roberto, of course, they had no chance because no. he was locked up in a He was such somewhere. a freak, uh, crazy dude. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the other guys, you know, they are, it's not really the samba jazz guys are not the famous ones. They are just the good musicians that you that you meet. The, 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 Brazil is 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 a is a singer's culture. You know, they are the songwriters and the singers. The instrumentalists back in the day were not a big deal. I was hanging with the instrumentalists, colleagues, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The stars were doing something else. You know, the instrumentalists played for the stars. It's like you have a gig with Tony Bennett or something, but you hang with the other musicians. So I didn't really meet the, the great famous guys, but I recorded with Menescal that I did. And wow. when I lived there, I had a steady gig, so I met a few of them. But it's not like you, you know, you hang out with Mr. Beam and then you go to lunch and you cut an album. They are also on another level, you know. They they were and are national heroes, you know. You can't just, you don't just meet them on the street. <laughs> no, corner, I did. You know? I, I, um, also, one final thing before I let you go: Were you too young? When did you first? I mean, the, I, I was doing a documentary. I did about four dozen radio interviews. Uh, with cats for a documentary that will probably never come out on Stan Getz. I spent four days at his uh, estate in Shadowbrook with Monica, his wife, second wife, and um, you know, from Ron Carter to Huey Lewis uh, to you know whoever. Uh, when the girl from Ipanema hit, it just changed fundamentally changed all genres of music. I just wonder when you first heard that. Uh, and if you sort of scoffed at that early on and, and then sort of came back later when you became fanatical about uh, Bassa or yeah, something. I heard it. It wasn't that old. You know, I heard it also in the mid-70s. Like at the same time that I discovered jazz, I also discovered Bossa Nova the same way. There was a, a record, an LP somewhere. And the, the mid-70s, 
we're like not even 10 years away from the height of Bossa Nova. Absolutely. You know, the height of the Bossa Nova was the mid-60s, so it, it was still kind of fresh and there, and I liked Bossa Nova, and it stayed with me since then. Bossa Nova became samba jazz because, you know, Bossa Nova is vocal music. It, I wanted the, uh, the instrumental version, so... Yeah, it's, 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 it is a parallel thing. My straight-ahead jazz thing and my Brazilian thing kind of started at the same time, and and I went to both places to the source because that's what I believe is important. I came here because of jazz, and I went to Brazil because of the music. You cannot really catch the music if you don't know the culture. Hendrik Merkins, you just... Just spit up. You chewed all my questions, spit them out with ease. Um, It's such an honor to connect with you, man. I really hope I get a chance to get back to the East Coast. And I don't know, do you ever make it out to Arizona to play? Uh, I did play at the Instrument Museum a few years ago. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah, I played there once. Nothing is scary right now, but it can happen. Hey, man, I just wanted to say thank you so much and, and for your contributions. I hope you have a great gig and uh, maybe we'll do this again someday. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, brother. Have a great day, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.